welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast looking at 25 of our favourite films from a given decade. This is volume 3, 1990 to 1999. This is episode 64 of the podcast. We are looking at Michael Mann's 1995 movie, Heat, which has had a massive impact on cinema, even if it is criminally under-awarded. But we are here to talk about it now. My name is Matt Waters, as I said. I am joined by Ben Phillips. Ben, how's it going? It's going all right. I may have been out till two o'clock in the morning last night. This is Um, when we get our best podcasting out of you. When you are sick, when you are punchy, when you are hungover. Yeah, I'm at least two of those things at the moment. Excellent. (laughs) I'm guessing you don't have the energy to be punchy, but we'll see about the rest. I can be be punchy. I can bring the energy out to be punchy. I was was walking around London streets last night an awful lot, kind of rehearsing in my head what I was going to say about this movie, so I have, like, things to to say about it. Unfortunately, your opportunities to be punchy are going to be minimal, because I think we are in complete and utter lockstep on this movie. Five stars, potentially the best movie we've ever covered objectively. Like, I think we both came to the thing of, like, this is not, like, a sentimental favourite for either of us. Like, I would not put this in my top three, top five movies. But if I'm just talking about, right, what is objective... If objectivity can even be a thing in art, which it can't be, but still, go with me. The platonic ideal of a, of a fucking movie. Yeah, it, if I, it, if it I does not get like, better than this. If I did, like, the ten greatest movies of all time versus my ten favourite, like, mm-hmm. Heat would probably end up on my ten greatest, but not my ten favourite. If it was on my favourite, it would be low. If it's on, like, greatest, mid to high. Just flawless. Somehow, as I said, zero awards. Completely has its fingerprints all over a generation of filmmakers. Christopher Nolan's favourite film, and it shows. You can even just put a couple of scenes side by side with their equivalents from The Dark Knight, and it's like, well, yeah, you just did this with more money and and advancements in filmmaking and stuff. I mentioned we're in lockstep. This is our first... We don't really talk about this as much. We have picks each, and then there are picks that we share. This is the first one that we have shared thus far in the volume, 14 episodes into the volume. It took eight episodes to get here in volume one. Volume two, we kicked off with back-to-back shared picks. So this is the longest we've gone of just swapping back and forth, mine yours, mine yours kind of stuff. It is also the longest, the start of the longest streak of shared picks on the podcast. We will have three more after this. It's also the second longest movie we've ever covered for the podcast. It is. And raise the mat alarms, you know, 170 minutes long. Longest film in this volume. Is Boyhood longer? I think it's Endgame. I think Endgame is the longer movie. Oh, really? Wow. (laughs) I thought it was as good an Infinity War. It is my catchphrase to say it's too long, blah, blah, blah. So I feel I should at least address that. If all movies use their time this well, I would not complain about long movies. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's that's fundamentally the thing, and this is is what makes Heat so good, is that Heat is sort of three movies in one. Yes. Like, an hour of Al Pacino's job and family stuff. Mm -hmm. It's an hour of Bobby De Niro's job, family stuff, and then his compatriots in the the crime gang's family life. It's like existential crisis over trying to get out of crime. And then it's like a a movie that is just the cat and mouse game between... Hannah McCauley. Yeah, I I think the length comes from... You could make a worse... 90 minute cut of this if you kept it purely to the action and the most essential like investigation scenes the reason it's so long 
is that every character is a human fucking being with a family or a problem or something. Yeah, like, every every character has interiority, other motives, like they have enough time to have like a full arc in the movie. I think there is yeah. literally one character who the movie kind of puts emotional weight on that I think it kind of fails, and that's Natalie Portman. Yeah, is, is, but is, is, it's is her the, second the movie, one? and if you yeah. want to discount ones where she's acting out pedophilia, then it's her first movie. But, it, but it's fundamental, like Natalie Portman is the only character who is given emotional weight in the plot of the movie, but it feels like it's more in aid of other characters' emotional sure, journey. Arguably, a lot of them are kind of serving someone out. But like, even in that, everybody gets a moment at, mm. at, at the very least. Even like, I think Ashley Judd is kind of like underserved as an individual, but even she gets that like huge moment when she hand waves Chris away from a meeting, and it's like that is as good a moment as anything in the movie. And like, I look at a character as small as Don who appears, I don't know, halfway through, earlier than that, as, as he's like, multiple, a, he's like an ex-con. Scenes. Yeah, and he's, get, he's got a shitty job in a, in a kitchen where he's a victim of possibly, let's just say, definitely racial abuse. He has like five scenes, and he gets offed immediately in the final bank robbery. You know, like he, he has a girlfriend slash wife who sits down with him and has a heart-to-heart and everything. An emotional moment where she's in a bar and looks at his like well, picture on the screen when he's died and stuff yeah, like that. Like, I mean, to jump ahead massively, that iconic bank robbery and then shootout afterwards, that they take the time to pan around and look at the devastation of... I mean, they start you out with the cops, like you see, like look at all the cars, look at all the downed officers, and then they move you to look at their wives at home, looking at the news. As, as their like, husbands or, or boyfriends have been murdered or, or critically injured or whatever. And it's, it refuses to make anybody not a human being. Even Hank Azaria, even Jeremy Piven, even Tone Loke. Like, all these small, small, small characters have a moment. They do something impactful. I would argue possibly the cops outside of Pacino and Levine are kind of... They can't stack up to the criminal counterparts. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, whatever. Like, there's, there's so many people in the goddamn movie. And and that's why that's why it's so long. Like, you know, you could axe a great deal of the, like, you know, get rid of this person's girlfriend, like, cut all the scenes with this person's wife, if you wanted. But it would be a lesser movie for it. So this was originally a TV pilot called LA Tech Down, which... Michael Mann made this with the intention of being a TV show. I think you can see mm-hmm. the TV show roots in this, where it does feel like it's a mini-series in a lot of ways, where it's like, because you've got the real estate and the time to dig into these characters, you can tell that mm-hmm. probably Michael Mann had like a, a series bible or something yeah. to to plan out something. Obviously, it's 1980s television. It wasn't going to be a Sopranos or like a drama which was going to carry which week. It probably was going to be like each week would have been a new LA takedown or whatever, or it would have been like a cat and mouse game where they're doing a crime a week or whatever. But yeah, like you can yeah. tell there was an idea behind a lot of this stuff. So the TV pilot LA takedown is 90 minutes long. From what I've heard about it, like a lot of scenes are literally shot for shot, dialogue for dialogue, exactly the same between the two of them. Like, if you've ever wanted to watch the coffee scene from Heat with Scott Plank and Alex MacArthur, uh, you can <laughs> find that. I don't know why you would, because Al Pacino and Rob De Niro obviously absolutely kill that scene, but like, yeah. like in this 90-minute movie, you have whole swathes of Heat that are literally just like filmed in the same way, composed in the same way, the yeah. dialogue is the same... But what you're missing is the other 90 minutes that give context, give characterization, give so much more that make it a, a kind of a living, breathing, perfect movie. But yeah, like Michael Mann obviously like loved this, and there's a reason why he turned this into a movie seven years later. For the few people that don't know, Michael Mann 
was the the creative force behind Miami Vice, both the original show and then the movie. In this decade, he also did Last of the Mohicans and The Insider. Outside of that, you know, Ali, Collateral, Public Enemies, Black Hat, Thief, Manhunter, the original version of uh, Silence of the Lambs. Has he just been fucking around in TV recently? Because I can't really think of a, a more acclaimed director with so few films off the top of my head. Right, so you have to remember, Black Hat made fucking zero money. I'm sure, I'm sure. But uh, so, so let me let me just so Black Hat made in the entirety so on a budget of seventy million dollars, Black Hat domestically made eight million dollars. Uh, well, in its first in its first weekend, it made four million dollars. Open number ten at the box office. I think that's just like stuck him in movie jail forever. Like yeah. he took 2015 Chris Hemsworth and turned in like a, a, an absolutely massive turkey, which like, arguably stalls Chris Hemsworth's movie career. I mean, he he gets roles, but like that dude by now should be a list, a plus list star. Should have a franchise built around he does, him. He's rake. Sure. Okay. Fine. But yeah, like I think Black, I think Black Hat is kind of what's turned him down. But also, like yeah. from what I know of Michael Mann, he's also someone who likes to tinker. And, yeah. and like you, you can tell, like this is a movie that was meticulously made. And it's also like you know, to say that it, it started out as as a thing he was trying to make in the eighties, even though this comes out in ninety five, it feels very much like a product of the nineteen eighties. Like like mm. the the fashion. The we talked about it a little bit in Goodfellas, but this is moving things forward a few decades. But like you know, how you represent wealth and everything is is very telling and and you have two characters who kind of stoically reject those representations of wealth and everything it is based on a true story um of a cop allegedly michael mann has written a prequel novel that he's threatening to turn into a movie i don't think the the novel has come out but maybe leave it alone he is perfect (laughs) you mentioned that Black Cat made no fucking money. Let's talk about how much money this made on its budget of $60 million, Benjamin. He opens number three at the US box office the weekend of December 15th. Uh, it makes $8.5 million its opening weekend, behind first week of Jumanji, a monster monster hit, and yep. behind the fourth week of Toy Story, mm. making $11 million in its fourth week. Like, so, so, so you can understand why it's opening behind those, but it is... I mean, higher age rating. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an R-rated movie. Other movies in the top five, you've got Father of Bride Part 2, you've got Sabrina in at number five, Goldmary. <laughs> so you've got four family movies and Heat in the top five. Yes. Excellent. One of the darker Bonds. Well, I guess it's still a bit silly, but it it wasn't that era where Bond was getting a little bit more adult, I suppose. Just that isn't the Supreme the Teenage Witch. It's Sabrina. Oh, sorry. Some other. other, I don't. They've never never made a Sabrina movie. Yes, they have. No, they yeah. definitely have. Ryan Reynolds is in it. Most of the cast are different, but yeah. 1996. This is 1995. Oh, okay. Sabrina, which is a a, a television film adaptation. Oh. Oh, Sabrina, great. the 1995 <laughs> film, is a remake of the Billy Wilder film from 1954. Right, okay. Starring Harrison Ford and Julia Ormond and Greg Kinnear. Okay, well, how could it not be a banger with that cast? It was nominated for Best Original Musical Comedy Score at the Academy Awards and Best Original Song. Well, no awards for Heat, so by process of elimination, we should pivot into talking about Sabrina. Speaking of acclaim, you know, we talked about the Oscars, we talked about the big money winners. This is our last stop in 95, so what's missed the cut to be talked about on the podcast for 95? So the best movie in 1995, according to the list I pulled this from, is Underground, the Yugoslavian movie about the Yugoslavian Civil War. Okay. We'll save that for There Will Be Movies International Edition. It's in, I, I was doing some research before you called me into the movie, and it's quite funny to see, like, some people who are from Eastern Europe 
vehemently hate the movie because I think it's got a little bit of a conservative bent to it in terms of, or like a little bit of a right-wing politic bent to it. And then you look at like the guy who directed it and he's like saying like, if I was British or American, I could fully understand why you don't like Putin, but I'm not, so I'm still going to vote for him. <laughs> Which, I mean, uh, fair enough, fair cop. If you, if I you mean, you know, a man's got to have his principles. <laughs> Number two is Heat, and the best, second best movie in 1995. You've got mm-hmm. Jim Dead Deadman, you've got Todd Haynes' is Safe, Fincher's Seven, Toy Story Casino, mm-hmm. La Haine, The Bridges of Madison County, The Usual Suspects, Babe, My Precious, Precious Babe, and Before Sunrise, kind of wrapping out the 1995, like, solid list. Yeah, pretty good, yeah. Like, Heat is obviously the best Western movie of that list. Yeah. There have been particular years in this decade that, like, it's so hard to not end up with, like, five to seven movies from the same year and I think 95 was one of them <laughs> so yeah well this is our fourth and final movie yeah 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 exactly. from this year. it's exactly. the most uh, the most from any year we'll be covering apart mm. from I think 97's got four as well I think 97 and 99 were the other two that were really difficult 99 is generally considered to be like the greatest movie of year of all time by yeah, or like, yeah, the greatest yeah. American movie of all time and we're also not discussing the best American movie of 1999 so it kind of does make it listen you made the rules. <laughs> I'll keep saying it to you. <laughs> I would have happily talked about the same movies twice, but we're not going to do that. But we can, if you want. You can talk about The Dark Knight a little bit. We did that a little bit in the uh, in the Addenda episode, but inescapably, The Dark Knight in particular, and basically everything Nolan makes, is very clearly heavily <laughs> influenced by Heat, especially given that The Dark Knight features bank robberies by masked individuals. It features numerous sort of chases and shootouts in the streets of Gotham. Arguably, the interrogation scene is intended to mirror these two characters getting coffee in the middle. So, I mean, if you want to talk about some Nolan and some Dark Knight, you can now, Ben. I mean, I, mean, I think obviously the biggest the biggest reference to Heat is that opening bank heist yeah. from, like, from Dark Knight. It's comical how much it's very clearly been lifted, like, even down to, like, the soundtracking of this constant drumbeat and, like, how noisy it is. In a good way. Like, I, I know a lot of people complain, like, you know, cinema's gotten so noisy. You know, we all become old men that are like, everything is too dark and too quiet and too loud. But, like... I mean, even, even in regards to Nolan, where, like, people are like, is Nolan deaf? Because <laughs> he consistently undermixes dialogue yeah, in yeah, his yeah. movies. Like, it's it's a very consistent problem with his movies that is very interestingly in such a, a Nolan trait that, like, <laughs> some people at this point just kind of stroke off and other people are, like, genuinely intrigued whether or not he is like in some ways hard of hearing possibly because you have to imagine like when he's editing these movies he does have loud scores loud sound effects and that has to come from um i was texting friend of the podcast Jerome, basically saying like heat or what if guns were the loudest things you've ever heard in your life well is... i mean he mic'd up the set basically most movie gunshots are dubbed in post whereas this he strategically places microphones all around the set which I think very few of any other movies have ever done. So you are hearing... I mean, obviously they're firing blanks, but you are hearing actual guns firing blanks on film. It's a cacophony of gunshots, which it just really does heighten the tension. I I wouldn't want everything to do this, but it does massively contribute to the tension, and it feels so dangerous every time a gun is fired. You know, the getting away from the bank scene is just an exercise in just, like, it's horror 
basically. <laughs> Just seeing yeah, these yeah. people unload cannons down the fucking street. And I think that's when Nolan's kind of taken a lot of his like mm. sound cues for his movies. Is yeah. obviously he's got that relationship with Hans Zimmer, or or did have up to this point that relationship <laughs> with Hans Zimmer. It's so obvious that like loudness and kind of like jolting you out of out yeah. of things with the like big cacophonous noises. Yeah. And as you say, like he hasn't when guns are shot in Inception, it's not it doesn't have the same effect that it does mm. in Heat. Like Heat feels like dangerous, as you say, because it's yeah. like when you see movies where shootouts happen in the street, if normally one or two gunshots, it's normally self-contained, people are running away. You've seen it a hundred times, like, you know, it's the same fucking thing, and this is just, like I said, it's like they're firing fucking cannons, like shoulder-mounted cannons down the street, and like, the damage that is done to everything around them, everyone's screaming and running away, just unloading round after round after round. Um, I love the shot of you have Kilmer on one side of the street and De Niro on the other facing opposite ways and just firing and it's like yeah just it's insane even like the structure almost where like if you compare like Batman gets the Joker and then there's this whole other plot arc to wrap up afterwards with with Two-Face and what's going to happen to Gotham and everything. You can reflect that in that, like, you know, they have their meeting, there is the Big Bang scene, everything kind of wraps up, but then there's this whole Wayne Grow thing to settle and then they have to have their final... It feels like you're approaching where the end would be in a normal movie, quote-unquote. Mm. But then it's like, right, we've got to wrap this up. And Yeah, like, like we, we have not got to the actual, like, emotional points of the movie. So, yeah. like, once the bank robbery's happened, it's like, cool, now we need to have the emotional yeah. denouement of everything yeah. and have the final confrontation between yeah. Hannah and Macaulay. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because I think, obviously, everyone says when you watch The Dark Knight, it feels like there's that tacked-on third act when they're doing the stuff with the boat. And I think it's, it is a failing that, a lot of movies feature and you can see it in so many things such as like The Last Jedi is another one where like once you get to Crate it's sort of like okay we're still going like there's a there's a level yeah. of exhaustion and I feel like everyone is trying to ape the heat structure but the thing that heat got so correct and a lot of other movies don't even movies that I deeply deeply love like The Dark Knight and The Last Jedi is it's so focused on the relationships that you've been building the entire time all the way through, whereas Dark Knight and Last Jedi both feel like you need to make it a big action set piece. I would also say that both of those are very clearly middle points of trilogies, and like mm. the arguable high points of those, I mean one of those is inarguable, but of those trilogies and like it's kind of like your brain plays like how would I do this franchise, let's move this scene into the next movie, let's get more time with, with this director, etc. Whereas like he is a self-contained animal, so like I think it it does work better to to keep that there. But not I personally think that the the boat stuff and the sort of final act of of, of Dark Knight is is great. And I also think that I wouldn't trade you know all the stuff with Luke facing down all of those people. I wouldn't trade that for the world. Would I? But like it's it's a different kind of come down. Yeah. I think yeah. I think he embraces the yeah. fact that it's going to be a quiet kind yeah. of like half an hour. Like all right, we've done the thing where we've yeah, had the big yeah. action set piece whereas a lot of other movies like because they are superheroes and because they're blockbusters feel the urge to yeah. have act three be as big as act two was yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, and again it's something we've discussed about why we enjoy Civil War so much is that Civil War peaks with act two and then act three is very much that like now let's do the emotions the final fight is going to be right. like, a, fun, like a, a fist fight between two characters that you give a shit about and it's 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 that kind of vibe that he goes for it's like yes there is yeah. Wayne Grove to deal with yes there is is like 
Chihalis needs to go like see his see his wife, but it's all little quieter moments yeah. that isn't going to end with someone opening up a gunfight until you get to yeah. Hannah and Macaulay, really. And I promise we will get into like you know, I mean the biggest thing is is the two leads, and I promise we'll get into it. But I think when we get into that, we're going to be there for a while. So I just want to mop up some stuff before we go anywhere and like stemming from like you know the gunfire and and that i think one of the biggest things is the authenticity and i think it's something that like nolan tries for but like man like has completely mastered in this movie that like every place is a real place there is there are no sound stages uses the same location scout from last of the mohicans um Jane Poley, I think, or Janie Poley. He specifically asked for places that have not been on film before. You end up with fewer than, you know, it's single digits of the 85 locations have been used in a film before. Um, so it's like, this is real LA. This is LA you haven't seen on film. He has the cast meet criminals in Folsom Prison. He has the detectives have dinner with real detectives. He hires former former soldier turned book gun nut Andy McNabb as a technical consultant. They do three months of, of weapons training. Allegedly, some of the footage from Heat is shown to Marine recruits. There's just such a, a level of detail in that way, and like just something small, like in the opening scene where like the officers have temporarily gone deaf from the explosion. And he's like, "Hey, dipshit! Like, look, <laughs> there's blood coming out of his ears. He can't fucking hear you." And you know, there, there are plenty of like you know unrealistic things. Like guns do not make flashes, but it it looks sexy on film. So you have something like Trejo's execution. You see it from this like ridiculously gaudy like clifftop mansiony penthouse place, and you just see that flash in the dark to to signify he's dead kind of thing. But for the most part, I think you can see so much of of that care and that meticulous nature. And you know, the stuff that Nolan is also like famous for is that he is a tinkerer. He is it must be just so kind of thing and he was already probably had some of these sensibilities but like you know you can see so much of that in heat i think it's funny so i'm looking at dante spinotti who is the dp on this movie mm. he obviously worked with michael mann a lot he did last mohicans with him he also did heat and then he does la confidential a couple of years later and the insider both of which he's nominated for academy awards for cinematography and i have to imagine both of those are kind of like oh fuck we didn't give heat mm. a cinematography <laughs> not <laughs> let's let's make it up to this guy who like shot one of the like best looking movies or best uses of space and best uses of all this different stuff it's for sure and another thing like this has come up a lot modern movies have become so sexless um so like you know utterly asexual like this movie finds time to be hornier than any movie that's come out like the first time we see Pacino he's getting his fuck on like Val Kilmer feels his wife up before they start a big argument we have five straight minutes of De Niro seducing a stranger kind of thing and like this isn't a movie about it's not not about relationships but you know the crowd that are like it does nothing to advance the plot it's like yeah this doesn't advance the plot but like this is fundamentally as as we said like all of these people are human fucking beings uh, and and they find the time for those sort of home moments this is what elevates heat above other things the amount of times that we have discussed movies or blockbusters or big action movies and gone boy it's a shame they got x name actress and she did fucking nothing she was a housewife <laughs> who was a bit of a shrew and did nothing and it felt like it feels like for a while that like the only place to get those roles where you play the wife of someone who is involved in crime or in some ways an anti-hero, the only way you get good roles out of that are on television, in your Breaking Bads and your Sopranos and yeah. all these kind of things. And Heat feels like an urtext in a lot of ways for how you do that in a movie. And yes, the only way you can do it is to functionally stick another hour of runtime onto it, mm. but 
every single like the three leads of this movie each have a person they are either like already involved with or in the process of getting involved with they all have romantic subplots they all have emotional weight to carry in this movie yes i wouldn't say that like diane Venora, amy brenneman or ashley judd like are as good or as magnetic as Pacino, De Niro, or Kilmar, but like they do what they need to do yeah. incredibly well and give like so much more emotion and and stuff to just just about any other romantic lead that yeah. we've covered in so many of these movies. I think all three of them, it's like they're not given a huge amount of material to like really sink their teeth into to make these three three dimensional women, but all three of them get at least one like big big moment. Amy Brenneman's body language when she is like pulling away from De Niro when he you know when when the truth has come out about what he does for a living and he's like saying they have to run away together or whatever and she's just pulling her head away from him trying to kiss her is so powerful and so good and Ashley Judd as I said like the little the little finger wave uh, the subtle like just looking at Chris all the problems they've had all that you know she's she's there with her fucking monstrous and like you know ready to rat on him and she just looks at him he smiles and like she's like no run and it's like there's such a huge moment in the movie yeah so like even them in a perfect world every character gets a lot to do and like there's more gender balance but you know for a movie that is fundamentally about like five men involved in like a major series of bank robberies and and all of that like it's as good as it could get really without like you know the cop is a woman or a member of De Niro's crew is a woman or something like that but yeah. I, but what I also appreciate is that like all of the women have the same plot, subplot, which is basically like they're sick of their men's shit. <laughs> it's fundamentally a movie about women who are involved with men who arguably they shouldn't be involved with, yeah. and it's just sort of like, really, are we doing this again? Yeah, there, really, there is an undeniable kind of takedown of a certain type of man going on here and it it's like so many of these things it's like breaking bad it's like whatever where it's like you are simultaneously going to create porn for the type of men that want to be like this there were many real life armored truck robberies and and, and bank robberies that stemmed from heat there's a french gangster who walked up to michael mann at a film festival and said you were my inspiration <laughs> <laughs> after seeing the thief and heat and all of this but like so you're simultaneously doing that but then you are also subtly for those with media literacy criticizing and, and and maybe not completely taking it down but like yeah like you said like all of these men have they have a problem like like Val Kilmer's character is literally an addict I mean, he's a gambling addict like I think Hannah was supposed to be it got cut from the movie but like he was supposed to be a cocaine addict or, or he does you know which, Hannah's which mania is, is, is attributed to just he's played by Al Pacino so one assumes he is on cocaine but yeah this is this is post like Pacino kind of like I feel like Scarface is yeah, when Pacino yeah. kind of loses his subtlety in a lot of ways <laughs> like he's getting hired to play big and I think this movie brings him in enough, but like mm. you can't. The moment I said to some some friends I was watching Heat, I immediately got a, <laughs> a gif of like she's got a great big ass. Or... <laughs> what do we got? We should do it now. Like so, a huge part of the marketing for the movie was we've got Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in the same scenes. This, One this, scene, kind of. Yeah. This is what the second of four collaborations in their career. Yeah, three of those four movies are arguably some of the best movies of their given decade they do it every 20 years mm-hmm. we ignore the fourth time that they work together because it's a, a travesty of a movie is it not the third time oh sorry yeah third one is the one yeah. that we ignore that's the one where like 
the big reveal is they've been using each other's names all along or some shit like that. Is it Righteous Kill? Oh, jeez. But yeah, like famously, you know, they're, they're obviously not in the same scenes together in The Godfather Part 2 because... Their, their scenes are set decades their apart. Their scenes are set decades apart. Yeah, so like the, the big selling point here is they're not just in the movie together, they're going to act together. And like, they only have one scene. They're obviously both participating in an, in a couple of the action scenes, but like, they are not seen on camera at the same time kind of thing. Yeah, the um, first time they have a conversation together is when he literally pulls over the car and says like, yeah, come on, let's go get coffee. 90 minutes into the movie, but like, literally, the movie opens with both of their names side by side on screen, then the opening title, then the name of the movie, and then the rest of the cast. So it, it went that deep in terms of like, here is your selling point. It's Pacino and De Niro. It's the Titans. It's the heavyweights. They're going to have scenes together. And it's one scene, but it's a fucking electric scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, The Irishman is the movie that they have the most screen time together in. It's funny because obviously the end of that movie is a complete flip of heat where it's De Niro killing Pacino. Spoilers for The Irishman. Spoiler, well, spoilers for real life, you know, who Pacino's playing. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I've not seen Righteous Kill. I just know the reputation of it. So I, I can't have. speak. I can't speak. I think I it. own it, but I don't know where it is. Do, but like, does one of them kill the other one, or is it one of those ones where it's like a standoff? Do they each have like one kill against the other one? I like, think they turn on each. One of them turns. One of them's a crooked cop, and you think it's they've been using each other's names the whole time, or some shit like that, or like they never. You assume one is called something and the other is called something else, and they do some allegedly clever fuckery to make it so that they never actually say their names or whatever. And then it turns out the one that... You've known one of them is crooked, but it turns out it's the other one because the names are flipped or what, Some bullshit. I can't remember if one kills the other or not. It's, it it's, wasn't it, a good time, but... <laughs> it's it's just deeply funny that, like, the four movies that they've worked together on have been a Coppola movie, a Michael Mann movie, a Scorsese movie, and then some motherfucker called John Affnett. Yeah. I mean, look, Righteous Kill is a symptom of the fact that there are just not roles for actors of a certain age. And it's like, I can see why, if they're like, you're going to be the leads, it's going to be all about both of you, you can fire guns, you'll have monologues. I can see why they'd sign up. Because what else are they doing? Especially at that point in their careers, where I feel like Al Pacino's in like the big lull of his career, where like, you look at the things he's doing, he does Jack and Jill three years later. Yeah. I mean, he's great in Jack and Jill, but like, fundamentally, Al Pacino's doing Jack and Jill and this is when uh, again I was talking to a friend where it's like it's conceivable that Robert De Niro has a in contention masterpiece in every, every single decade, decade. Yeah. yeah apart from the 2000s like the 2000s is the one where it's like you kind of go like oh, yeah. does he have a masterpiece like is his best movie of the 2000s Meet the Parents yeah probably and he's, he is fantastic in it, obviously. But then, like, he gets he gets the sickness and he gets, like, bogged down in that for forever. And it's sad that, like, the only roles... Like, occasionally, a legendary director will toss them a life raft and be like, hey, let's get the band back together. But, like, I can see where they'd bite the arm off someone to give them a feature because their alternative is doing, like, shitty sex comedies and stuff. Like, yeah. Like, so, yeah. still still is doing that, but he's also yeah. luckily now back in the Scorsese wheelhouse. Like, he's doing another movie with Scorsese. Obviously, he's been working an awful lot with David O. Russell in recent years, obviously, where he's done, like, Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle and yeah. Joy. Like, he was, like, working an awful lot there, but not a huge fan of David O. Russell. I'm much happier to see him back in the Scorsese wheelhouse because, obviously, like, the Scorsese... 
Niro collaborations are obviously historically like some of the greatest movies of all time. It's actually an interesting thing where like I think that Robert De Niro is in three five-star movies of the 90s like Goodfellas, Jackie Brown, Heat is like a, an incredible run. Two of those movies yeah. he's more of a supporting actor than a lead actor and arguably Goodfellas is my least favourite of those three movies. <laughs> the fact that he is like what makes this movie so fascinating is that both Pacino and De Niro and Michael Mann are at the peak of their powers and you yeah. kind of like are wrangling them at the same time where De Niro's in the middle of like a run where he's kind of I'm done playing the lead in these crime movies. Obviously, he comes back for this one, but like he's far happier to take third lead in Goodfellas. He's far happier to take like the 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 not lead character in Jackie Brown. Mm. And obviously, like he's got Casino as well during this time, where he is playing the lead in a in a Scorsese movie. But like, is he taking more and more risks at this point with his career? That does ultimately lead him to doing comedies. But yeah, this this is a lightning bottle movie of getting yeah. these three people like these three people involved at the same time, essentially. Yeah, yeah. it is always fascinating to see the movies that are just like this could not have happened five years earlier five years later like this is a perfect storm of, of, of people and they were the first choices but like other considered pairs were Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges Don Johnson for Al Pacino's role I can see all of that but like you know there is no possible combination in probably in cinematic history that could beat this out I... <laughs> this is not just because all of those people you named, they do this kind of movie quite a lot. Yeah. And, but this is not the kind of thing that Pacino or De Niro do frequently. Like You look mm. at how many movies that Pacino does in between this, and it's like 15 to 20. Like the, he, isn't, he does a movie every couple of years, and so it's a big deal when Pacino does a movie like this. Like, yeah. The only equivalent... I, can, I mean, a big problem is nobody's a movie star anymore. But the only remote equivalent I can think of is the first time you get Schwarzenegger and Stallone together. But, like, they are known for, like, schlocky movies. So it's like, even that doesn't work as a comparison because it's like, it, it's like imagine if those two were Oscar-winning actors. <laughs> you know? But in terms of, like, these two titans in, in a certain genre finally coming together to collaborate. And, like, I don't know how many of the various movies those two are together and I've seen. I would imagine they all shit. But just this meeting of, the, of these titans like this, and, yeah, I feel like, like the, I feel like the only actor of this caliber that you could get into this kind of movie would be like a Jack Nicholson. Yeah, like like that. That's about the the level that you need to pitch at. Where it's like, exactly, who are yeah. greatest actors of all time? Yes, they've all had their like low points. They've all ended up doing like shitty comedy movies. But like yeah. fundamentally, like Pacino, De Niro, Nicholson. Mm. Like if you're reeling off a list of like who are the ten best leading men of all time, that's probably quite firmly in your top three. Even if you look at something like The Departed, where it's like at the time Matt Damon was a bigger star than than he is now, and like even like we've got Leo and Matt Damon and Nicholson and Wahlberg and Baldwin and all it's like even that doesn't compare to this. It's just yeah, I think I think Nicholson would be the only other person of this caliber that you could put in it and be like, oh my god, these two are gonna collaborate. But yeah, and like, you know, so much of the goddamn movie is very plainly like these are basically the same person. They are both former Marines their entire personal life it goes up in flames because of their utter devotion to what they do they both are flashy dressers like Al Pacino is styled after Pat Riley the, the NBA coach turned executive as was Michael Douglas and Wall Street like the suits the the, the slick black hair all, all, all that stuff is it, all patterned after that I say they're the same person but like in their demeanor they are opposite in that De Niro is calm professional there is like a quiet rage below the surface that like it takes these big events to bring out 
on the flip side, Al Pacino is legitimately insane as Hannah and is constantly shouting. And, you know, you, <laughs> you know, we've given some of the quotes there, but like just even something is like you could get killed walking your doggy when Tone Loke says I could get killed for this. But then he has he has like a level of compassion that it only comes through in key moments. Like he is all rage all the time. And then when when the chips are down and Natalie Portman has tried to kill herself, suddenly he's this compassionate, caring, warm man. And like even before that, when Wayne Grows killed a prostitute and, and like her mother is there and he like intercepts her as she tries to run and see her mutilated daughter and he like stops her and hugs her and everything. It's like so it's like they are mirrored in that way as well. In that, you know, yeah, De Niro is like unflappable and it takes like the killing of Michael, the the shooting of Chris to make him suddenly lose his cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's that interesting dichotomy between the two of them where Hannah has a family life and it grounds him yeah. in a lot of ways where, like, yes, he's completely abandoned his family, he's so married to the job that he'd rather be out till all hours of the day solving murders and, he, like, he can't emotionally, it, it, like, emotionally open up to his wife because yeah. he's like, well, I can't, I can't bring this shit home i need to compartmentalize and yeah. so you get this emotionally stunted version of me because otherwise i'm worried that i'm gonna like break you if i come in and say i watched a woman like who had her head beaten in by a man today yeah. and i had to go comfort her mother like i see this shit all the time like this is not it is an unfortunately like gendered trope of like men deal with things that they must bottle up and they will come home to you know you miss dinner and, and all of this, and the women must simply live with it. But that is not the fault of heat, I will say. No. It, is, yeah. it is a larger issue. But then the interesting flip side of that is that this feels like Macaulay's first relationship with Amy Brenneman as Eddie is like his, like, that feels like his downfall in a lot of ways is that he doesn't actually know how to kind of like marry a relationship with the way that he, he works and stuff like that. So, yes, yeah, so as you say, like, he loses his call from losing two of his colleagues or three if you count Trejo in there as well. And then, and then fundamentally, like when when they're together at the hotel, and mm. Hannah is like running up to the car, and he spots him, and he like looks Eddie in the eyes, and is just like mm. making the decision of whether or not he's gonna do the ten second dump on her, or whatever. Like, they they just... hammer that rule home to like it is said aloud twice, I think, or is it three times? Twice at least. Allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in thirty seconds when the heat are coming around the corner. And that's, you know, that's where you get the title from. And I can't believe how often we have to say this, but, like, signposting is a good thing. And, the script, you know, you set something up and then you pay it off. He says it out loud twice. And then at the end, he looks the situation up and down and he walks out on it. And I think it takes literally 30 seconds, I think, if yeah. you time it. I think the thing that makes it so good as well is that he's been the one fighting for her for mm -hmm. so much of the movie. Like, he's the one that's going up to her and going, like, no, come on, you're coming with me. We're, get, we're getting yeah. passports for doing this. And then he obviously makes the... The, the irrational decision to go get the revenge on Wayne Grove. Yeah, and, and like even that, if you go back to the mirroring thing, they are both at the same point of the movie, post-bank robbery, facing a situation where it's like, Macaulay can't help himself. Like, all he has to do is drive to the airport, and he is gone, like, forever, probably. I mean, you know, maybe it's like Point Break, and, and Al Pacino finds him on a beach in Australia. Uh, no, he was going to New Zealand, wasn't he? All he has to do is go, and he can't help himself, and he is normally so unflappable, and if he just remains true to who he has been throughout the movie, he's away, and he gives in to his, his big emotional need for revenge, and it fucks him. Conversely, Hannah, throughout the movie, has been a fucking loose cannon, and his stepdaughter, um, Natalie Portman, ha has slit her wrists in the bathtub. And he's in the hospital with... He's separating from his wife and everything. And his pager goes because Macaulay is, is in the hotel and 
going for Wayne Grow and everything. And his instinct is to ignore it. And it takes Justine... Like, he is willing to be there for that important moment and, and let this go. Finally, after the whole movie, his philosophy has been everything for the job. And, like, it's just simply a matter of fact that, you know, I've been married three times. It's basically not possible for me to hold down a relationship because of my job. And then when the chips are down, he's willing to stay. She's the one that pushes him. But no, go. And then he fucking sprints because he desperately wants to go. <laughs> but he is willing to in that moment. They both have gone against their character throughout the movie and it ends up being Macaulay's downfall and, and Hannah's win. Or, you know, maybe you could argue if he stays, then he does repair that relationship and everything. And, you know, she wants to get back together and he's like, ah, just, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's just fascinating that they are so mirrored in that way. And, like, both of them so good. Like, I don't want to say Pacino's better, but, like, there's so much more, like, insanity going on. Pacino's giving the bigger performance. Yeah, I think, but then De Niro is just so quietly magnetic as well. Like, I mean, that's the thing is, I think when Macaulay and Edie are having their conversation above the, the, the obviously fake LA skyline, it's interesting, but it's not as compelling as the way that Pacino will do kind of like a similar scene. But Pacino, that's because Pacino's kind of like, he's all energy. And De Niro is perfectly pitching his performance to be a counterpoint to that, I feel. Yeah. Uh, in that, like, you wouldn't want, this movie fundamentally fails if both of them are giving the same, like, 11 out of 10. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, absolutely. It's, it's better if Pacino's giving an 11, if... And if De Niro's giving more like a seven. And it, and it plays more to their natural strengths. Like, Pacino is fundamentally an animated, flamboyant person, and De Niro is a sort of quiet storm. We open with De Niro's crew going to work, like, seeing them, like, surgically do their thing, and then we go straight to Pacino's little crew of cops assessing the crime scene. And again, you know, they both look like complete geniuses. Their assessment of the crime makes the criminals look even better than we've already seen they are. Like, they spell things out that perhaps didn't need to be said, but we'll say them anyway. Like, you know, they knew they were on a clock. The MO is that they're good. As soon as one person got murdered, they didn't hesitate to just kill everyone else because... Once you're culpable for a crime, you might as well just fucking go for it. You know, ignoring the cash, because there's no time for that. Just so, so good. And then, you know, like, the first time we see Hannah be passive-aggressive about work with his wife, we then, shortly afterwards, see a scene with Macaulay. You know, he has his meet-cute with Edie, and his first instinct is, Lady, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> like, like, his instinct is to push her away. But he does soften up, and we do get that sort of, like, five un uninterrupted minutes of, of, of them falling for each other or whatever and, and you'll see like the change with him comes as he Val Kilmer's character is like teasing almost teasing him of like you know when are you going to get furniture when are you going to get a wife and his answer to both questions is like you know when I get around to it and he, he lives in this like empty fucking apartment um, and he's, he's got no one and it's when he's out at dinner with his crew all of them have brought their wives Michael Chirito has children and, and he's looking around and then he goes and calls Edie and he's like alright maybe I am finally realising this is what I've been missing kind of thing and maybe it is time for me to get out of this kind of thing yeah like this is a limited run career for me I need yeah. to stop this at a certain point this is going to be our last big haul obviously like nothing goes right because they have those kind of like the three points in the day that are going to be like their three big hauls and it feels like that's when they're out like they're going to do they're going to sell back the bearer bonds that they get from Van Zandt they're going to break into is it a gold reserve that they break into I think or, so yeah or platinum yeah. or yeah something. and then obviously the bank robbery at the end 
end is like the three of those are going to be like they're big halls they're going to run away but I feel Macaulay knows that and the rest of his crew critically don't in that mm. Chris is an addict and he just needs to keep doing things to fund that because he's all he's even like we'll, we'll talk about Valkyrie in a minute but like he is very much like even with everything we've been doing you're broke and he's like well you know <laughs> gambling happens and then like Tom Sizemore when asked what do you want to do he's like whatever you want to do kind of thing he's like, he's like I'll do whatever you tell me and Trejo basically both in a meta and, a, and an in the film sense basically isn't a character but you know they're all down for it for as long as this is going to happen and he knows there is a limited window on all of this and in in, in that way he is very like Bodhi in Point Break where it's like he knows eventually he will be caught kind of thing and there, there is a tale on this I think that aids Macaulay's character as well in that he cares about his crew if if someone like or particularly these two arguably three but definitely these two you know Wayne Grove fucks up and, and his ass is out but like I really want to, who do they ever get into like who recommended Wayne Grove to them <laughs> no I, I, I don't know but because I mean that, that I mean that feels like the kind of thing that like this prequel that Michael Mann's written mm. is going to do is like you end or with Wayne like, Grove all the time <laughs> Because Wayne Grow is the fundamental like wrench that kind of kicks off the entire movie. Like if Wayne yeah. Grow doesn't do what he did, do the events of this movie even? Yeah, happen. it's a random yeah. act in the first scene, and it it's everything. Literally anyone else has his role, and they probably never catch him. He probably gets away. Blah blah blah. But, but, but the only thing that might still happen would be the Van Zant stuff. Is the only yeah, stuff yeah. that might happen otherwise. But even then, like the Van Zant stuff is not the stuff that Pacino is like tracking. No, in the no. movie, like it's it's the stuff. Van Zant makes Wayne. himself known to them because of Wayne Grove. So yeah. Um, but I but I like that moment for Macaulay when he asks them, "What do you want to do?" Like like this is a three way vote or a four way vote kind of. Thing. <laughs> I say three because he just looks at Trejo at the end. And he's like, "What about you?" But yeah, like it, it is a democracy. It's not like this is what's happening. Fuck all of you. He does care about them, and he he tells Chirito, "I wouldn't do this if I were you. Like you've got a good thing going. I'd get out if I were you." So they're building to this all throughout the movie. These two, you, you get great little scenes like the the gold robbery or the platinum robbery, where like they are staking it out and they are waiting to catch them on camera actually doing something illegal. And there's that one random innocuous noise, like one of the random. SWAT team falls into the truck a little bit or something. Macaulay hears it, stares directly at camera, and they do shot reverse shot with Pacino looking into looking at his monitor, but essentially into camera. And you get this effect of them staring at each other, even though we know they can't see each other. And it is electric, possibly because you know the meeting is coming. But like as an early tease, I really like that. But then it all builds to this to this coffee shop scene. Yeah, and the coffee shop scene is like this this electric thing where both of them lay out their thesis on where they're doing things and again having this conversation with like we're equals, like they could pull out guns and shoot each other in this place and like the movie would be over. But like I think <laughs> I think both of them are a little bit addicted to the cat and mouse chase of it all, aren't they? Like it's fundamentally like, Oh, I found an equal and I want to prove that mm. either Macaulay can escape this guy's watch or Hannah can catch this guy in the act of doing it and obviously neither of them kind of succeeds because Hannah doesn't succeed in stopping at the bank robbery the only reason he succeeds is because Macaulay fucks up he's not even doing the crime that he's supposed to do it for it's because he's getting revenge on Wayne Grove and that like a huge pivot point of this movie and like a number of crime movies is you could get him on something tiny but you've got to get him for everything and it's like well you've got him you you caught him you've been following them around all this time you're sitting face to face with him just arrest him and it's like 
for what? We saw him break into a place and then not take anything and leave. <laughs> and just that frustration of, of, I know you know, you know I know, we're sitting face to face, we know probably the next time we meet is going to be holding guns, pointing them at each other, and it, and it is. And they just have this honest heart to heart, and like, they do take a liking to each other, and it is very like, tell me about your dreams, tell me about your dreams. <laughs> in this restaurant and then like you know even leading up to it where like it's so extra like a helicopter surveillance and then Pacino was dropped off next to a fast car so he can drive after him and pull him over while the Moby cover of Joy Division plays and it's just this excellent like greasy synthy rocky thing and, and hey do you want to go get a cup of coffee yeah um, big shout out to the amount of helicopters in this movie <laughs> like I think Pacino spends more time in a helicopter than a car in this movie <laughs> just completely unnecessary but I wouldn't change it for the world I have to imagine that's the best way for police to get around LA is in a helicopter oh yeah the traffic is, is impenetrable for sure it, it's also one of those things and this is a complete tangent from this but it's like it's I, a friend messaged me yesterday while she was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer and was just like I don't understand the geography of LA <laughs> New York you know Manhattan you know what you know what like Manhattan looks it's like islands it's in squares yeah yeah <laughs> whereas LA is like all of this is LA and yet, like, there's so much, and as you said earlier on, 85 of the locations in this movie, it's only single digits that, like, these are things that have been shot before in, mm-hmm. in films and stuff like that. And you watch this and go, like, yeah, LA, when you watch a movie set in LA, yes, there are certain locations that become iconic and become, like, central to film, but they tend to be movies that are about movies and mm-hmm. set in Hollywood and set yeah. in that kind of world. That's or, the LA we see. And then, like, when you see other bits of LA, you're like, what? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and or, I think or, in that way, I mean, I, I don't live in either of these cities, so this is just possibly crazy but like, I think in that way LA is the city in America most like London in that it's mm. like it's just expanded and mutated into this much larger monster out from smaller towns um, and this is this is exactly the point that I make because I, I, the thing I said to my friend was like but imagine telling someone that Ted Lasso is set in like London London like mm-hmm. yes they refer to it as Richmond a lot but Richmond is fundamentally a part of London and yet it's not the London yeah. that you think of like it's not the scene from Far From Home where they're fighting on Tower Bridge like the the same like literal like five streets that anything in London seems to be filmed on where like you watch Paddington 2, Spider-Man, Mission Impossible, Men in Black International, it all films in the same like It's all the London Eye, it's all Tower Bridge, it's all St. Paul's. Yeah, 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 all all of this stuff. It's never the like miles and miles and miles of suburbs and and, and it's because it's three cities that grew over each other Mm. and and it is just it's it's basically a city state. Yeah, Um, and if you and if you do get something that's gonna film somewhere else, it's an attack the block or it's a boys in the hood type thing where it's like like let's go to the suburbs but we're going to make yeah. a movie about like what it's like to be probably a minority or probably someone like not high on the economic level who lives in this like little community that is fundamentally more like a town right than... and and you see hannah go to what they call a cardboard town and chase up this this lead on um first it's albert Torino, and then that leads him to to tone loke playing his brother richard and it's like where is this this looks like almost <laughs> another country and it's like yeah welcome to like economic disparity rather than we're going to take you to the rich areas of every location in a film shout out to tone loke for holding his own in a scene with al pacino like not an easy thing to do but like that's I mean, ev- everyone really nice. who everyone who gets like al pacino is most manic does a good job like tone loke does a good job hank azaria does a good job <laughs> like hank azaria has so much more to do in this movie than you would imagine hank after this movie, like you would think fun- it would be that one scene where yeah. he tries to threaten him and he's like, "I'll oh, shut the fuck up." <laughs> but then it's like, no, but you need to carry on the affair that you're having with with Ashley Judd, and we're gonna 
drag you to like the safe house with her like, and you're just going to be sending off quips every so often. Has a profound impact on his career because he pivots that into what he calls a bad Al Pacino impression for Mo, and I think Lou is supposed to be a bad Stallone and, and all this sort of stuff. Said he was legitimately frightened of doing that scene with him when he just yells out because <laughs> she's got a beggar! <laughs> and who can blame him? The coffee shop scene, just to go back to that, just at De Niro's insistence, they do it with no rehearsal. Man captures both of their faces in every take. I mean, I'm sure they also did some coverage as well, but like they were afforded the ability to do what they want and improvise and play off each other because, not to get too into this, but generally the way movies work, you film one actor, you film the other, they kind of have to match the takes well, so you can't really stray too far from the script because then your takes can't match very well. Whereas they are just sat down in a real restaurant, they used the real staff as the extras, I think they got them SAG cards, so yay. <laughs> and yeah, you see these two just fucking talking, and like, they get their big money lines of, you know, like, brother, I am taking you down, and then like, I gotta do what I gotta do, all, all this shit that Tom Hiddleston does bad impressions of. But it's just electric just even seeing them talk about innocuous bullshit. Like, Al Pacino gets that great line about we're passing each other on the downward slope of a marriage and, and asking if, could you ever really catch me while you're, you know, could you hold down something like a marriage while you're trying to follow me everywhere, kind of thing. And the two of them just even talking, I think, just paid off <laughs> the massive premise here. And like, to build to it and to do it at 90 minutes into a, into an almost three hour movie, like to just have this white hot injection of tension at this point, like they've been working around each other and never meeting. And then it's like, right, boom, we're doing it. I would have to assume that Nolan did deliberately mirror that with the interrogation. Batman and Joker sitting opposite each other at a table. It has a very different vibe, but like, I, you know, why aren't more movies doing this? <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't yeah, be special if they all did it, but you know. But yeah, the first thing is like, and what you what you love about it is, is like immediately after he gets out of the coffee shop meeting, they're just like, oh, yeah, they dumped all of the surveillance. They knew where it was. They dumped it all at the exact same moment, the exact same time, whilst mm-hmm. you're in there, and now we've lost them. Mm-hmm. And that's what leads like the carnage of the bankruptcy, which like. I mean, we've discussed that to death, but I feel like it's, it's a good point now to talk about Kilmer, where, like, because obviously Kilmer's a little bit more manic than everyone else. Like, there's, there's certain things that he's doing during the bank robbery that, like, like he's the last one to put on his mask because he's a little bit too much enjoying the beating up of the security guard. And then he's calm and collected, like, for the rest of it. But then it's just that, that moment when, like, they're walking out, they're going to make it into the car, like, Sizemore gets in, and then... And then and then yeah Kilmer spots the cops across the road because the bus leaves just the wrong moment and just like he sees them and then immediately he's opening fire and like kicks off the entire thing Kilmer has an energy in this and like obviously I don't think he was ever at the level of those two but it is I mean he's literally filming Batman at the same time he films his scenes for this he turns down 40 million dollars to do a Batman sequel I think he told Danny Trejo he didn't want to have to keep wearing a mask and then he signs up for this movie where it's not for long but he is putting on a, a bank robbing mask and everything mm. how could you turn this down obviously that they, they asked johnny depp i feel we've said that in basically every episode this this uh this volume he asked for too much money they think about brad pitt they think about keanu reeves but ultimately val kilmer says yes despite filming batman forever 
and he is really good as the functional third. Yeah, like, like he, he, gets, he does he gets the, the and credit because like in on the yeah. credit block he is like the last Christian above the title name. Like he's just after John Boyd, who also gets like that, <laughs> like and credit. But John Boyd obviously has fundamentally less than the movie. John Boyd's just the the elder statesman. More it's than like his his, narrate, his his mentor, his advisor, his confidant. Yeah, like yeah. it's all well and good, but it's definitely not like it, it's the kind of thing you'd expect for someone like John Boyd. Whereas Val Kilmer's doing something interesting and like yeah. again he's making choices with his career where like he could be the lead in so many different things he's like no i'm gonna take third build in this movie but he still does get like he's he gets to come out of this movie relatively unscathed apart mm. from being shot multiple times <laughs> yeah he's he, i think people even like to pick apart like the choice of the masks like he wears a white mask at the beginning and the other three wear black ones and he's the only one that lives but yeah val Kilmer, like you know he evokes so much I mean, the guy's kind of an asshole. Like, you know, to see him, like, throwing shit and walking out on his wife and having these huge gambling debts and everything, it's like, oh, what an asshole. But then, like, you forget that when you just see him sitting quietly with Robert De Niro, who just like, right, what's happening, man? Like, you know, and he, like, you know, he's lost all his money betting on the Super Bowl, he's lost all his money going to Vegas, all of this stuff. And he does just quietly say, like, the sun rises and sets with Charlene, basically, as far as he's concerned. And it's like, you know, you're not actually showing that to her, but, you know, it's a nice moment that you say it in your hyper-macho bro time. And yeah, just, you know, despite everything, and like, you know, Macaulay is like approaching Charlene and being like, right, you give him one more chance, and if he fucks up, I'll set you up with a new life myself. And I don't think she actually does that. <laughs> I think she continues fucking Hank Azaria. I mean, I think, no, because like, I think that's the last time they see each other, and then Hank Azaria is the one that calls her out of the blue because. Ah, uh, okay. Is it that he calls her and that's what like leads to her being taken into the safe house or whatever it is? I can't even remember how that comes up, but yeah, yeah like. It's, it's definitely like they're, the Hank Azaria set up is like, like Pacino figures out that, that Ashley Judd is seeing Hank Azaria and then they go to see him in like his office in like another yeah, know, yeah. state yeah. and then like and then like there's half an hour of the movie where Hank Azaria is not there and then all of a sudden he's back to kind of like set up this end game with, with Charlene and Chris. Well isn't it that like they get Tom Sizemore via Tone Loke and then they put tails on all of them and their families and then presumably following Charlene around leads them to his area. Yes, yeah. And I love that it's that. I love that it's not that Tone Loke knows De Niro, it's that Tone Loke knows Tom Sizemore, who is like third or fourth on the run. And who doesn't, doesn't, doesn't even know Sizemore, who knows someone <laughs> who said the same word as Sizemore during the bank robbery yeah. that Pacino only knows because a homeless guy overheard him calling yeah. one of the police And officers he even slick. says, ask the FBI for anyone who uses the alias Slick, you're going to get the phone book, ask anyway. But it stays with him enough that he's walking out on that meeting with Tone Loke and he's like, what did you just say? Because he says Slick. And like a lazier movie would lead you directly from random criminal random small-time criminal to the head of this giant operation it doesn't it leads you to a, an alias of an a you know an associate of an associate to somebody in the crew kind of thing so they even you know make him keep working from there and like even when they're staking him out and they're like right we know this guy we know this guy we know this guy who's that and macaulay never looks up and stuff like that and that he is this loner with no attachments so he's harder to t to follow um they do get him of course from, from that and find out who he is but yeah they turn the surveillance back against them in a nice moment where like they lead them to a fake meeting and then photograph them all and find out who they all are but, but yeah valky my like you know despite all of that he gets shot and like in the middle of this high tense shootout macaulay breaks what he's doing to go to chris and try and get him to safety 
gets him patched up by Jeremy fucking Piven. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, he rocks up at the end with a haircut, clean shaven, and he's just smiling. And then uh, Charlene is like, no, get out of here. Yeah, like, like she's she's contemplating. Like that's the thing is like all up until that moment, it's like, am I going to let him in here and go away? Like, has he hurt me enough to do this? And she sees his face and obviously like remembers her love for him and like sees the mm-hmm. smile on his face and is like, yeah. no, I can't do that. He's like arrived as I think that he's arrived clean shaven with a haircut, so he looks like more boyish. I think probably helps. <laughs> but speaking of that moment, like, and to go back to like one of the original points where like, everyone gets a scene, even like McKelty Williamson as Drucker. The cops are basically all just there to sort of say one-word answers to Pacino so that Pacino can look smart and clever and stuff. Even he gets this really nice monologue to, you know, a slightly uh, (laughs) politically weighted monologue, but still, um, he gets a nice little monologue to Ashley Judd near the end to convince her to rat on her husband and stuff. The cast is so deep that, like, Micheletti Williams can be, like, tenth build in this movie and, like, like just completely smash everything. Because obviously Micheletti Williams is probably best known for TV at this point. I know, like, one of my favourite things that he's done in recent years was his, his, like, role on Justified, but, like, he's got a good long career in, like, what he's Bubba in Forrest Gump. He's in Con Air. Like, like this isn't isn't someone who, even up to this point, hadn't been in movies, but he is someone who, like, is... Is happier to take a sizable supporting role in support of a vision of everything where like yeah, yeah you're not going to give him like i mean I, d- I don't think he's played like a lead a lead lead in like a huge tv show that's gone on for a long period of time but he's definitely like when he comes in he's a face that you recognize and he's just a, a charismatic motherfucker yeah. and so it, again it, it's that thing where i can't remember what movie it was that we were going through recently where like every single person in this thing is a fucking ringer yeah. like it's insane <laughs> the, it's insane the depth of this cast where it's yeah. like like even down to the fact that like Ted Levine is mm, our old friend Ted Levine. Like yeah, like a guy who four years before this movie is playing the villain in one of the highest grossing movies of the year is like yeah I will take Detective Mike Boston. Yeah, turns like, down Wayne Grow for fear of typecasting. Would have been good as Wayne Grow probably. Yeah. I think he's good as as like the the most chatty of the cops. Wes Studi and Jerry Trimble don't really make much of an impression, and I think that's you know you can only do so much. Like, if you, if you try and mirror the cops with the robbers, as it were, Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore and even Danny Trejo. Is Danny Trejo just recognisable because it's Danny Trejo? Like, yes, absolutely, yeah. Like, they, they hired him as a consultant because he'd done armed robbery before. <laughs> they rename his character to Trejo. He never gets a first name. Unless they're trying to say Trejo is his first name. He has very few lines. They do give him the scene where he's like, oh, sorry guys, I can't lose my tail. And then Macaulay, like, goes to, like, kill him out of anger and ends up killing him out of mercy kind of thing. It is just funny that, because obviously Danny Trejo is one of the people who does, like, seven billion movies a year. Like, he will do literally anything. But then every so often he has something where it's like, oh yeah, it's just fucking undeniable. Like, Danny (laughs) Trejo is one of the most recognisable faces in Hollywood just for the sheer amount of stuff that he's done. (laughs) There is no equivalent of Val Kilmer on the cop side of it. No, I guess it's supposed to be Ted Levine, but we never get a scene, like a real heart-to-heart moment with Ted Levine, really. Well, Um, I think it's because, I think that weight has to come from the fact that, like, Edie and Charlene are taking up less room than Justine is. Like, while Justine's the the character that we probably spent the least time with, I do feel that, like, they kind of make the decision to pivot more into Pacino's home life yeah. rather than his cop like when he's with the cops it's all business and yeah, like yeah, yeah. the the extra stuff around him is coming from justine 
because normally when they're doing crimes as well, even when Pacino and De Niro aren't interacting in the crime stuff, fundamentally, after that initial bank heist and the standoff with Van Zandt, Pacino is on them. And so he's always, like, the crime scene's become a split thing between the two of them, where yeah. Pacino's reacting to the stuff that De Niro is doing, in the same mm. way that you say, that, like, when he hears the noise in the van, he, like, runs away at that point. Where mm. And so, yeah, it's, just, it, it's an interesting flip where, like, there are arguably more cops, but they just have so much less to do than everything. I'm a huge fan of Tom Sizemore. When he shows up in anything, I'm 10% more engaged. Doesn't have the size of character as Chris Saharis? Shaherless? Whatever. Val Gilmer. It's not as big of a character, but like he has a big presence because he is just an intense performer. Um, we've kind of gone over my favourite moments for him, but like I like the botched meeting with Van Zandt, and we can maybe pivot into that little collection of, of fuckers, but like when they try and set him up, and they think they're being so fucking clever, like, oh, it, come alone, and then they like try and sneak up on him, and you've got Val Kilmer playing sniper, tipping him off. And then Tom Sizemore's just waiting at the entrance with a fucking shotgun to get anyone that makes it out. Macaulay calling Van Zandt up and being like, I'm talking to an empty phone because the guy on the other end's dead. And then they just leave him for like ages. And he was willing to just let that one go. That when he finally kills Van Zandt, and, and by the way, William Fitchner, being in both this and The Dark Knight is, you know, very much on purpose but yeah like that this is set up as a big lingering thing for so long and then when macaulay finally kills him it's so meaningless because now wayne grow is the real fucking get and I, I love that about it that like you know you've got this greasy millionaire who like they steal from him and then they're gonna sell it back and he's actually gonna make money based on what john voight says because he's gonna get both the insurance and a better markup yeah, on... he's, he's gonna get 1.6 million and then he's also gonna get he's gonna only pay 60 percent of 1.6 million to get another 1.6 million bearer bonds exactly like, so he's gonna make which... money out of the robbery but he's like no one fucks with me but then it's like he's just like a entitled boy millionaire playing at being a gangster and then he, he meets a real fucking gangster and they wreck his shit basically and you have to and you have to imagine that like Henry Rollins is like <laughs> like dobbing on him the entire time yeah, like is, yeah. is the entire thing because obviously like it took like Hugh Benny that, that Henry Rollins character is the person that is gives the tip off about Wayne Grow to the About police. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Henry Rollins in like his third fucking movie. Bizarre that he's had so many acting roles, quite frankly. <laughs> Covering him more than I thought I would on the Matt Signal Beyond, which you can find on IntoTheRealWorld.com. But the sort of Van Zandt and Wayne Grow and like Kevin Gage, like, you know, was Leave Schreiber busy? Because to me, like, he's a dead ringer for Leave Schreiber. But I'm surprised he didn't make more of himself because this role is it is an engaging one like he is gross for sure like you know he yeah, fucking refers to himself as the as the grim you know you are visiting with death when he yeah, like fucks it's, this it's underage actually, prostitute it's a little bit insane that this movie manages to carve out as much time for a character of Wengro who is functionally only with the main characters for one scene and then just has this like he's just skirting around the edges of the entire thing and again like it's crazy that it works that this movie leaves Wayne up until the very end as yeah. a like a lingering thing to deal with, and then by the time you get to it, it does feel like the the kind of catch twenty two of all. It's like yes, you yeah. feel satisfied that Wayne Gross finally fucking died because he's been such a repellent character mm. through all of this kind of like machinating and trying to get revenge on. Yeah. The fact that they tried to kill him earlier on because of like his fundamental fuck up during the during like, the robbery. Even that, like, I there's so many tangents that can be done in this goddamn movie. The scene where like they meet in the in the diner after the you know they got away with it, but some stuff went a bit wrong in that first robbery. De Niro like assaulting him 
in public and then Sizemore just staring down whoever looks at them. That reminded me of in Batman Begins where Bruce Wayne tries to confront uh, is it Maroney or Falcone? Whichever one it is. Tom Wilkinson. Some uh, Italian name. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like willing to pull a gun on him. He's like this is real power. I could do this and no one gives a shit. And like you know they wait to go outside to try and kill him and everything and they're professional enough to like Wait, 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 wait. And he gets away while they're waiting, kind of thing. Um, I think I think the shocking thing about that is that he's not doing anything to keep Wingrove from going, but I guess like, they don't <laughs> want to look like they're doing anything dodgy and like they've only really got the cover of the yeah. of the trucks to hide the fact that like there is a guy who is like on the floor <laughs> being punched in the face multiple times. Everyone gets a thing. Unfortunately Wingrove's thing is is mutilating prostitutes. Um, Child prostitutes. Yes. Yeah, 16, 17 year olds. And then, you know, he goes to that bar and he's like, hey, I'm looking for trouble. I'm a cowboy. And he calls himself, does he call himself Death or the Grim Reaper or something when he's when he's with the prostitute? Like, he's gay. He says, like, yeah, like, she's trying to go. And basically he says, like, oh, no, you're not going anywhere. Like, you don't this understand is... this situation. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, that he styled himself as this fucking other per, you know, as a character that he's basically role playing. And then, you know. That he ends up getting his comeuppance is, is great. But, like, even that, like, you know, he's in this hotel and, like, Macaulay's infiltration of the hotel is, is really funny. Like, calling the desk from the room service or, or from one of the back rooms and, you know, just perfectly playing that situation. Setting off the fire alarm, making his way up, avoiding all the cameras. Just great. And then, like, it's not even, like, a struggle. He just fucking breaks his nose with the butt of the gun and then's like, hey, look at me. And then just double taps him. And it's like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Are there any other characters that you want to touch on? Or I mean, we do? I think we've hit everyone there. So do we want to focus on that, like, final scene as, like, our, our, our final point of, like, yeah, the, like, obviously, like, everyone, like, they escape from the hotel, he's abandoned, Edie, and then it's just, like, a cat and mouse chase, which is the thing that I fucking love about this scene is... No dialogue for five minutes? No dialogue for five minutes, but just the way the light works and everything yeah. where like you keep on wondering what's going to happen where like you know where they are or you know more or less where they are geographically around these like air vents yeah. um and then you see the plane come down and the, the runway lights kind of light up and kind of like send this like massive load of light towards where mccauley's hiding and you're like okay something's gonna happen with this and then hannah walking out in the open mccauley making the move to come out and shoot him just as another plane lands causing mm. his shadow to like fall in front of hannah and hannah taking like the shots to take him down it's just so well done so well choreographed so well like set up in terms of like just economic filmmaking yeah. at its best and, like, the, the, this is what you get when you film in a real place we keep saying this and yet i keep guzzling down these fucking green screen movies with a smile on my face but still you can see the difference in that like this is entirely told visually this is entirely environmental storytelling like they just make you sit in it no one is saying anything and then yeah and then it comes down to a shadow what you also really appreciate is that like fundamentally like who are you rooting for by this point are you rooting exactly. for Gino to take down Nero like sort of not because it's not yes De Niro has done bad things, but it's all been because other people are fucked up. Like, he isn't Sizemore kidnapping the child. Like, he doesn't yeah. do anything that egregious. <laughs> he does do that, doesn't he? <laughs> Even that, like, when they're doing the bank robbery, which, by the way, I think the bank robbery itself gets downplayed because of how fucking good the, the escape from the bank robbery is, but, like, we want to hurt no one. We're here for the bank's money, not your money. Your money is insured by the federal government. You're not going to lose a dime. Think of your families. Don't risk your life. Don't try and be a hero. And then telling anyone who feels sick or has a heart problem, oh, you can go against the wall. They are literally trying to avoid casualty and like, hey, look, here's the reason for this. Don't be fucking stupid. And like, they do, they do make a point of the fact that like, the criminals 
use fully automatic weapons, the police use semi-auto because civilian casualties, all that sort of stuff. I don't want to go as far as to say Macaulay is like a gentleman thief or anything like that, but like, he's not a monstrous character. There is pain there, there is loneliness, and like, when he says, I'm never going back, and like, they get into like, he wants to do everything he, he's got to do, kind of thing. And he, by his words, he hasn't even started the stuff. Like, everything he's doing is so he can then go have a life. And I guess Edie represents that kind of thing. But then he walks out on her because of his 30-second rule. Heat's a good movie. He is as close to a perfect fucking movie as it gets. I think we literally both had that written down and texted each other last night. And like I was getting into how hard this is going to be to cover. And you were like, it was, hot, I was... hot take. Heat might be a perfect movie. And I literally had that written down. Heat might be a perfect movie. Yeah, it was like literally one of the things was like, am I holding this in to like open up the podcast? And I was like, because like, obviously I've done my whole thing about like Babe is one of my favorite movies in 1995. But like fundamentally, like it's not my number one movie in 1995 because it, it can't be in like the fact that this movie exists. Yeah. I'm going to go watch Collateral soon a movie i've never seen and i gather is good but like how does he not get this man just blank checks for life to make anything he wants to make i mean it is funny because obviously like uh, the podcast blank check did cover michael mann it's one of the the co-hosts like favorite directors of all time he's mm. one of the biggest miami my stands i've ever like encountered in <laughs> just general conversation uh, yeah. but like I mean, michael, michael mann's good like he makes great vibey movies that are also like very intricately plotted like his Ali movie is like wild I really like Ali wild in the way that it's structured yeah like it is. it's not it is not structured like you would imagine any kind of biopic to be no and I need to watch like, I've got a couple of gaps in for filmography that I need to watch I definitely need to watch Thief like I've heard Thief is genuinely incredible Thief so. is good Thief is good I don't care how little money Black Hat made like he made fucking heat <laughs> <laughs> he is perfect right I think at perfect. last we must leave heat where it lies and next week we are heading to the snowy northern parts of america erstwhile on fargo but until then benjamin will there be movies i haven't read anything for this what can you say heat's perfect yeah heat's perfect like this there's, there's I'm, my brain is too discombobulated from the hangover and discussing this movie for 90 minutes but yeah heat's maybe, perfect. maybe i'll just bro- i'll drop in tom hiddleston's bad impression or something <laughs> we're sitting here like a couple of regular fellas. I mean, uh, you do what you do, I do what I gotta do. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're gonna turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. What if you do got me boxed in? I'm not gonna put you down. We've been face to face. Yeah, but I will not hesitate. Not for a second.